Okay, we're in Romans chapter 16, and this is it. This is our last message from uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. This letter, which with the rest of Scripture, uh, was given by inspiration of God, where God breathed. And I'll just read the passage before we look at it. Now to him, uh, verses 25 through 27, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this, uh, these last three verses here, they're in the form of what's called a doxology. Um, a doxology literally means praise words or worship words. It's an expression of praise to God. And it's a very appropriate way for the Apostle Paul to conclude this, this magnificent letter. This letter in which he uh, set forth in a really detailed and systematic way uh, the, the gospel, the main message of Christianity. He uh, laid out what we're supposed to believe concerning that gospel and then how we're supposed to live if we say that we believe in that gospel. And after all of that, uh, rather than just saying the end or grace to you, he can't help himself but conclude with this doxology, these words of praise. And that all by itself is, is a reminder that the doctrine that the Bible teaches us is supposed to move us to praise and to worship God. It's not just to fill up our heads with head knowledge. It's supposed to lead us to worship. And by the same token, when we do praise and worship God, it's supposed to be with content. Uh, worship in the Lord is not just emotions or emotionalism. It's the proper response to God's truth about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That leads us to praise and to worship. So we can't just uh, read these words and treat them as poetry and say, that's it, let's pray, let's go eat. This doxology is filled with praise, but it is filled with content. It's amazing what Paul says here in these three verses, this one sentence, as he brings the book of Romans to an end. Uh, it's, it's unique in the sense that uh, he actually brings to a logical conclusion several themes that he, that he begins in Romans chapter one. Not all of Paul's letters end that way, but this one does. And I'll point that out as we make our way through it. So this concluding doxology from the Apostle Paul. And um, we're going to draw some lessons 
from the doxology and the first lesson that we see here is that God strengthens believers by the preaching of the gospel. We see that in the first part of verse 25. So here it is again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul doesn't mention God yet. He's going to, in verse 27, he's the only wise God. Now it's just to him. And Paul is going to describe God by what he does for believers throughout these verses. And the first thing he mentions here in verse 25 is that uh, this, this God, this him, is able to strengthen believers. And it turns out that this is what we need as believers. This is our greatest need. More strength. More encouragement from God. We're believers. That means that this gospel that Paul lays out for us in the book of Romans, we've embraced by faith. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're following him. We've been justified by faith. We've been adopted into his family. We've been born again. We're, we're being sanctified. All these things that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And what we need now is God's strength. And he did mention that back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. As he opened this letter, he said, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And as you'll recall when we saw that, that didn't mean some uh, miraculous spiritual gift. He goes on to explain what he means by that in verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he was going to do his part to encourage them, to strengthen them. That's what he was hoping to do in some future visit, which never materialized. And that's what he set out to do in this letter, to strengthen the believers. And here, as he brings this letter to a close, he reminds us that actually it's not Paul himself, it's not even other believers who strengthen each other. It is God himself who is able to strengthen us. And you'll notice that God strengthens believers, Paul says, according to my gospel. This gospel was not invented by Paul. It was revealed to Paul. It was given from Jesus to Paul. But Paul had so embraced it this gospel had so transformed his life. Paul had so dedicated his life to the proclamation of this gospel that it was his gospel. He had taken possession of it as it had taken possession of him. And you'll notice too, uh, he calls it my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean the preaching that Jesus did, but it's the, 
the proclamation about Jesus Christ. It's the proclamation which is mainly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, that is the center of the gospel itself. Jesus is the gospel. And so in these words, Paul is saying that the gospel is the source of our strengthening. The gospel is the means by which God strengthens his people. And that's really important for us to keep in mind. Because a lot of believers assume that the gospel is for unbelievers. That the gospel is mainly or only for unbelievers. That's how people get saved. And then once we're saved, we need other stuff. We need other truth beyond the gospel. And this is a good reminder that the gospel is for believers as well. This is how God strengthens us. Think about that. How does the gospel strengthen us as believers? Uh, just a couple of reminders here from the book of Romans. For, for one thing, the gospel strengthens us because of our remaining sin. We're saved, but that doesn't mean we no longer sin. We're delivered from bondage to sin. We're no longer slaves of sin, but sin still remains within us. Remember what Paul wrote in chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Paul wrote there, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And this was Paul's experience, but this is the common experience of all believers who are saved by God's grace. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then Paul just looks at himself and considers the, the disappointment, you, you could say, about where he wishes he was spiritually and morally compared to where he actually is. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then here's where the gospel comes in. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the Lord through the truth of the gospel, strengthening Paul himself. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Because of the strengthening of God through the gospel, we're able to look at our lives objectively without fear. We don't have to lie to ourselves. We don't have to put on an act for other people. We don't have to fear condemnation. We could, we could assess our lives objectively. 
And then finally in chapter 8 and verse 1, here's the conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need this strengthening of the gospel because we, like the Apostle Paul, continue to sin even as believers. And so we need the gospel to remind us that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future. We have been justified by faith and that justification is not dependent on our ongoing performance. We're just as justified, declared righteous, the moment we first believed in Jesus, as we are now, as we will be in glory in heaven. And that is true because of what Jesus has done for us. We need the gospel to strengthen us because of our remaining Sin, And then also, we need the gospel to strengthen us because the gospel brings us near to God. The gospel brings us near to God. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, and that's what we were before God saved us. It's a hard truth, but we were God's enemies because we loved our sin. Jesus himself said, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And God's holy. God is, he dwells in inapproachable light. That's what he deserves from us. That's not what we deliver because of our natural sinful state. And because of our sinful condition, we're naturally his enemies. But still, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God drew us near to himself. How? Not because we turned over a new leaf, not because we started to do better, but by the death of his son, God has reconciled us. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. He absorbed the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He became an enemy, legally speaking. God punished Jesus instead of us, and thereby he reconciled us to himself by the, by the death of his son. And Paul says, if that's true, then how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So notice that pattern. We have been reconciled to God and we are reconciled to God and we, we're going to be saved in the end. And so the idea is that in reconciling us to himself, God has brought us to himself. He's, he's removed the obstacles or the obstacle that kept us from God. There was this great chasm that separated us 
from God, the chasm created by our sin. God has removed that by the death of Jesus, and now he's brought us into fellowship with himself. That's the point of the gospel. Peter, the apostle Peter, put it this way in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's the point of the gospel. Paul discusses a lot of elements of the gospel, a lot of the accompaniments of the gospel in this letter. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, and all of the rest. And those are tremendous gifts. But the main thing that the gospel is about is God bringing us to himself, reconciling us to himself. The gospel brings us near to God himself. And because, as Paul says here at the end of Romans chapter 16, God is the source of our strength. God strengthens us. We need to be reminded that Jesus has removed that obstacle that separated us from God. God is always there for us. He's always available for us to draw near to him and so that God will strengthen us. And so God strengthens believers by the preaching of the gospel. That's the first lesson of uh, Paul's concluding doxology. Then he goes on to say, in this doxology that the person and work of Christ reveal what was previously mysterious in the Old Testament. So as he continues on, he says, uh, let's see, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Mystery, kept secret. It's going to go on in verse 26 to say, now disclosed. We should understand what Paul means there because uh, it's tempting to think that, this, that the gospel, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, was an absolute mystery in the Old Testament. This absolute secret in the Old Testament. And so now in New Testament times, now that Jesus has come, this is the first time that there has been any hint or any revelation from God concerning the gospel. It would be tempted to think that based on Paul's words, but that's clearly not what Paul means because that's not what he's been teaching throughout the book of Romans. Paul refers to Old Testament passages over 60 times in the book of Romans. In fact, there's more Old Testament references in the book of Romans than any other book in the New Testament, over and over and over again. Paul is trying to stress 
that this is nothing brand new that he and the apostles are preaching concerning Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Instead, it's the fulfillment of what the Old Testament pointed forward to. So I'm not going to show you all 60 of those references, but it would be worth our time just to have our memories refreshed. So back in chapter 1, here's how Paul began this letter. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, with the coming of Jesus, that wasn't the first time that the gospel had been hinted at or revealed. The gospel concerning Jesus Christ was actually promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then uh, skip over to chapter 3, verses 21 and 23. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and uh, 22, excuse me. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for referring to the whole Old Testament canon. Although the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And uh, remember in chapter 4, as Paul begins to lay out the doctrine of justification by faith, he refers to the Old Testament figure of Abraham. And uh, also in verses 7 and 8, he refers to Psalm 32, written by David in the Old Testament. And then as we saw recently, chapter 15, verses 9 through 12, all kinds of uh, Old Testament passages that Paul refers to. And then also in verse 21. And so, obviously, when Paul talks about this mystery kept secret through long ages, now disclosed, he doesn't mean an absolute mystery, an absolute secret. We're going to come back to what Paul does mean, but notice how this mystery, this secret, has now been disclosed in verse 26, uh, the beginning of verse 26. So there's this mystery, kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The prophetic writings is a way of referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament, to the prophetic scriptures as Peter refers to them in 2 Peter chapter 1. So what Paul is saying here is that now in this gospel age, post-death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, post-Pentecost, it's 
It's the same prophetic writings of the Old Testament that, that, uh, in which this mystery is now being disclosed. So it's not like there's a new message or uh, a new gospel, but this, this full unveiling of the mystery and the secret that had previously been kept hidden. It, it was veiled. And so if you think about it, that's why Paul, when he was converted and called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, what was his source material? What did he preach to people? He reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. That's what Peter and John and the rest of the apostles preached as well. Now, as time went on, God gave new revelation through the apostles and their associates that is also scripture, like the book of Romans. But that was a work in progress, and it took decades for the entire New Testament canon to come into existence, uh, into completion. But the entire time that the apostles were turning the world upside down, their source material was the Old Testament scriptures. They, they, they were preaching the old, old truth, but now they had been enabled to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. It's sort of like, imagine somebody having all these puzzle pieces, a, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle, and they're not big pieces, they're little pieces, and they're not the shapes of puzzles like I grew up with, but have you seen some of those new puzzles with weird, newfangled shapes to them that makes the puzzle even more difficult to put together? So imagine someone having this massive puzzle, a thousand pieces, and on each puzzle they see this little bit of a picture, one-tenth of one percent of the picture, and they, they can't figure out how it all fits together. And then somebody comes into the room and they say, I have a gift for you. Here's the box that that puzzle came in. And you look at the front, the top cover of the box, and there's the big picture. And now all of a sudden, even though maybe it's still challenging putting it all together, that, that uh, picture from the box of the puzzle, it all of a sudden solves the mystery. That is what all of these uh, pieces fit together to form. That's the big picture. That's Jesus. Jesus is the big picture that solves the mystery of the Old Testament. All of the types and the shadows of the sacrificial system, what was that all about? What was the Passover lamb all about? Jesus is our Passover lamb. Why did God make Abraham go through that trial in offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice? 
Well, ultimately, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on and on and on, Jesus makes sense out of the whole thing. And so that's why the apostles could take the um, scriptures of the Old Testament and preach Jesus. Because now, Jesus uh, solves the puzzle, as it were. He's the big picture. He makes the individual pieces fit together and make sense. New Testament commentator Douglas Moo put it this, this way. This hiddenness, as Paul makes clear in verse 26, does not mean that one could have no knowledge of the content of the mystery. What it means, rather, is that one could not fully understand it, nor, uh, and this is the special emphasis, he says, experience it. Jesus not only is the solution to the puzzle, but he's a real person. And so now we can love him, we can embrace him, we can know him, we can experience him. Notice as well in verse 26, Paul says, according to the command of the eternal God. This, this command is one overarching command that's repeated in different forms on different occasions, like the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Or it's uh, like God's command to Paul after Paul was converted. And uh, if we look backwards in the scriptures to Acts chapter 26, where Paul himself described this command, Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 16. This is him recounting his uh, conversion experience to Agrippa. So Paul says there, but I, uh, this is what Jesus said to Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet, Paul, the time Saul of Tarsus, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The command of God. And so the idea is that we receive the gospel by faith. It saves us. But that's not the end of the story. God continues to strengthen us by the gospel and he calls us to take the gospel to the end of the earth, to continue to make disciples of all the nations. Moving on in the doxology, here's another lesson, the third lesson. The goal of the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. Notice in verse 26, the second half. 
So what is the gospel all about? The gospel that is all about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's its goal? To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. We need to concentrate on that a little bit. The obedience of faith. The word faith there is used in the genitive case, which means when it's coupled with another noun, that it is the source or possessor of something. And so in this particular instance, faith is the source of obedience. Faith and obedience go together, they're linked. Obedience flows from the nature of saving faith. That is literally what Paul means when he says the obedience of faith. And this is really important for us to remember because there's a lot of people circulating through churches, maybe being comfortable in churches for a long period of time, and they think to, the, to themselves, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, everything's cool, because I believe, I have faith, when there's no evidence of Jesus working in their lives. This is how James expressed it. I'm going to give you some highlights from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That faith which does not have works. Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith apart from works is useless. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James and Paul agree. Paul goes into more detail in the sense that our justification, our right standing with God, God's declaring us to be righteous in his sight, that is apart from our works. Our works can never contribute to our legal standing with God. Our justification always is and must be by faith alone. But Paul himself goes on to elaborate in the book of Romans chapter 6, in particular, that those who believe in Jesus have been set free from the reigning power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. He goes on to elaborate that we have circumcised hearts at the end of Romans chapter 2. We, we have new hearts and that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. He has regenerated us. He's put, he's put the law of God 
uh, on our, uh, in our minds and written it on our hearts so that the righteous requirement of the law of God is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. This is consistent with James. Paul and James agree with each other. But what I want you to notice here is Paul's terminology that the proclamation of the gospel message is to bring about the obedience of faith. It is not just to give these get-out-of-jail-free cards. It's not just to distribute fire insurance. It is so that rebellious, hell-bound sinners like me and you would be transformed by this gospel into believing, obedient saints. That's the goal of the gospel message. Transformation, not just a free pass to heaven. Does that make sense to you? It's very similar to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works and that is God's goal in proclaiming the gospel to the nations. We, we need to see that and remember that. Salvation is a package deal. All right, the fourth thing that we see in the uh, doxology here is that the biblical gospel glorifies God. So notice verse 27. To the only wise God. So now Paul completes his sentence, which he began in verse 25. He identifies the Him who is able to strengthen us. It is the only wise God. And only there emphasizes the fact that the God of our salvation is the one true and living God of the Old and New Testaments. The, the God of the New Testament is not a different God than the Old Testament. One God. And there can only be one God. There's only room in all of reality for only one God because he's sovereign and self-existent and all-knowing and all-powerful. All no one can get in his way. No one can frustrate him. And the word only is also a reminder that there's only one Savior. Like the same apostle wrote in uh, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, there's, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then Paul refers to this one God as the only wise God. And that's really interesting. Wisdom, God's om omniscience, his wisdom. 
is the attribute of God that Paul highlights here because it is so highlighted by God's plan of salvation, which the book of Romans is all about. Think about what we've already seen. The, the wisdom of God is seen in how Christ fulfills the types and shadows of the Old Testament law and the promises of the Old Testament prophets. The wisdom of God is seen in the doctrine of justification by faith. Remember that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The wisdom of God, who would have thunk of such a thing? The wisdom of God is seen in his sovereign electing grace. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The only wise God. And then Paul says, to the only wise God, be glory. And what's glory? John MacArthur, God's glory refers to the consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. John Piper, God's glory is the radiance of the worth and beauty and greatness of God himself, the Godness of God. God doesn't depend on us or anyone else. He's glorious in and of himself. But it is right, it is fitting, it is reasonable for creatures like us made in God's image to recognize the wisdom of God in all that he has made and all that he does for sinners through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify him. It's very much like what we saw at the end of verse of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul emphasizes there in Romans 11, as he does here in verse 27, forever. Forever. When the Apostle John pulls back the veil and gives us a glimpse of the vision of glory that he had. The saints in glory don't beat on their chests. They, there's not a hint in heaven among the redeemed saints about their goodness or their wisdom or their wherewithal in getting themselves saved. But they, they cast their crowns at God's feet. And they say things like, to him who loved us and redeemed us by his blood, be honor and glory forever and ever. We're gonna spend eternity, brothers and sisters, trying to exhaust the depths of the glory of God, especially as it's 
revealed in our own salvation. And we're never going to get there. It's like a bottomless sea. The glory of God, he has saved us. And then finally, you'll notice that um, this glory is due to God forevermore through Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us. You can't know the glory of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't enjoy fellowship with God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And like like John the Baptist, the attitude of each one of us should be, I must decrease. And he, Jesus Christ, must increase. And that's how Paul concludes his letter.